Hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast, Sabbath School from Home podcast, as we delve a bit deeper into Isaiah, another bit of a curly passage to look at. To my reading, it has sort of a lot of uh, of problems that it raises, but it is actually one of the ones we seem to like talking about a fair bit, at least in the Adventist church. So I'm sure we'll have a great discussion and I'm glad that you're here with us. My name's Cameron and I'm recording from Launceston in Tasmania. Yeah, g'day, I'm Ken, and uh, this week you can guess where I'm recording from. Well, I'm Luke, and uh, I'm going to make you guess as well. (laughs) And I'm Lachlan, and I'm recording from Kurumbong. Very good. So, the lesson covers a huge chunk of Isaiah, and we're not going to attempt that because we have a very low success rate at at keeping our discussions, uh, you know, within time limits. So we're, we're going to focus in just on Isaiah 14, Locke, do you want to give us just a, a bit of a summary of, of what's happened between Isaiah 9 and the start of Isaiah 14? Yes, give us a previously on. Yeah, well, uh, the book of Isaiah so far has, has opened with some messages. Then there's the famous part, and we did look at this, where Isaiah accepts a call to be a messenger of God. There's some messages that come fairly embedded in the in the clear and tangible history. Isaiah presents a message to a specific king, and we understand a little bit about the context. And what we're coming to now in Isaiah sort of 13 up to the mid-20s are a series of statements, proclamations, oracles, as my headings in the ESV call them, concerning various nations. And it's launched off in Isaiah 13 with a, an oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. So um, it's a, a fairly vivid description of judgment coming upon Babylon. And then what we're going to look at now is Isaiah 14, which is a, a small break, and it shifts the perspective slightly. And it, um, it's basically a taunt. I guess we'll have to look into that and see whether that word is justified. But then on the next chapters, there's an oracle concerning Moab, Philistia, an oracle concerning Damascus, an oracle concerning Cush, and they seem to roll one after the other, fairly, fairly much like a block of these things. Is there an oracle lock concerning the Adventist Church? I haven't looked carefully enough for that one. I, I suspect that if we're honest, we're going to have to place ourselves in the shoes of some of the recipients of some of these oracles. Uh, if we don't do that, I feel like we're probably not getting all of what they're trying to tell us. Well, they're, they're not very uplifting oracles. Well, who says everything in the Bible has to be uplifting? <laughs> well, no, no, but certainly everything that we say about ourselves is. Right, right. Well, 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 Christian. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, let me tell you, uh, not all of these oracles are uplifting. Um, I can say that absolutely. Are any of them uplifting? <laughs> uh, well... Not very many. Well, the start of chapter 14, the Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Yeah, that's right. Aliens will join them and unite with the house of Jacob. So there's a good one. I find that first passage really fascinating. Um, And of course, once again, acknowledging that I read from my own cultural and social perspective. But that sounds like uh, the value of refugees and immigrants being espoused. Mm. You, you said aliens in the version you're looking at, Ken. 
and and yeah, workers. This one just says, and the house of Israel will possess the nations as manservants and maidservants in the Lord's land. They will make captives. Of, well, I suppose they'll make captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. Yes. Well, v- verse two is, yeah. is maybe a little harder to square with no, social justice. Quite where I was. But verse one looks good. <laughs> but that's exactly the theme that we need to tackle in this episode. In verse 2, they're finishing off, they will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. Um, This chapter speaks of an inversion of the power relationship between the people of God and the nation of Babylon. And in verse 4, the ESV uses the word taunt. Um, You will, the Lord, the Lord, um, in verse 3, when the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, verse 4, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and thence begins a taunt. The best picture of a taunt that I have ever seen, I think, uh, is Monty Python in search of the Holy Grail. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, Arthur arrives at, well, I don't even remember which castle it was, but there are the French... Um, guards on top. It's in England, but it's inexplicably <laughs> occupied by French people. And when he asks French, them, yeah. when he asks them what they're doing in England, they say, "Mind your own business." Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, they proceed to taunt him in well various ways that probably I'm not going to repeat in this podcast. But <laughs> and uh, this taunt here from verses well four through to twenty seven bears quite a few similarities to that taunting in, in, in that particular movie, both in the uh, exaggerated nature of its language, the creativeness of some of the details, and its general length and tone. Yeah. It's, it's pretty well, nice. What are some of these details? I, I suggest that we read through verses 4 to 11 um, just for now to get a feel for what you've just said, Luke. This, this idea of the almost comically exaggerated taunt how the oppressor has come to an end how his fury has ended the lord has broken the rod of the wicked the scepter of the rulers which in anger struck down peoples with unceasing blows and in fury subdued nations with relentless aggression all the lands are at rest and at peace they break into singing even the pine trees and the cedars of lebanon exult over you and say now that you have been laid low no woodsman comes to cut us down the grave below is all astir to meet you at your coming. It rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you, all those who are leaders in the world. It makes them rise from their thrones, all those who are kings of the nations. They will all respond. They will say to you, you also have become weak, as we are. You have become like us. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave, along with the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath you, and worms cover you. How you have (laughs) fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. So the bit that jumped out at me there, Luke, uh, you read, the maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. I can hear that from the French soldiers in Monty Python. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> is, it is very vivid language. This, this, is, this is a piece of literature. This, it's, desi- it's designed to stick in the, in the imagination, in the memory. Yeah, I'm not so sure I like it because God's just been saying that he's going to use the Assyrians and the Babylon, Babylonians and all of these nations to, to do his will or they are his chosen instrument. That perhaps is more precisely what, what's said earlier in Isaiah. 
So God's going to choose them to go do all these awful things, and then and then they'll get what's coming to them for doing all those awful things that that God used them to do. Perhaps He's got it in for everybody. Perhaps He's just got it in for everyone, or He's like some uh, you know crime boss who makes a uh, no. I'm not seriously suggesting God is like a crime boss, but maybe he's like some crime boss who's got someone to do all his dirty work for him. And then he dis- dispenses with the loose end. Well, I, yeah. I have another problem as well with it, Cam, which is this whole idea of, of you know, taunting. It doesn't, it doesn't particularly mesh well with the, the teaching that the, the meek shall inherit the earth. No. Um, or, we do or, a lot of or, preaching or, about, about Catholics. Uh, perhaps we should do some public taunting from the pulpit. <laughs> I'm sure someone out there is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the very the very imagination of that taking place, I think, highlights the the sort of awkwardness, the the discomfort that we have have when we when we're looking at this passage. At the same time, Locke, there's a, as as I mentioned in the introduction, there, it's that verse in verse twelve that Luke read that we really like. Because we we see this as providing a lot of backstory to Satan, the one about the morning star fallen from heaven, cast down, uh, the one filled with pride. Mm. Uh, that's that's an idea that we sort of I don't I don't know why we enjoy it so much, but we sort of enjoy knowing it. It's like a prequel. It's just like any good revenge story. It's like Taken. It's like the Count of Monte Cristo. It's like. Uh... Uh, great, they've got what was coming to yeah, them. Yeah, and one reason why we, especially as Adventists, like some of these verses is because they they seed themes which then get picked up in the Christian era, especially in the book of Revelation. So um, obviously that one, the, this idea of, of fallen from heaven, uh, that theme is picked up in Revelation. And over in um, the oracle concerning the fall of Babylon in Isaiah 21, a number of chapters further on, Uh, Isaiah 21, verse 9, And behold, here come the riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. I mean, there's another audible phrase that we associate with some of our comfort zones in Revelation. So what I'm finding really interesting is Isaiah clearly predates Revelation, and the author of Revelation is presumably familiar with the works of Isaiah, just as is the author of Revelation is clearly familiar with the work of Daniel. Um, but we spend so much time as Adventists historically exploring the connections between Daniel and Revelation. I've, I've just honestly never heard an Isaiah and Revelation seminar. And, and the link here is, is pretty clear. Um, so yes, you're right, Cam. Some of these verses are verses we, we have pretty soft spots for, but I am confronted by the context of them here in Isaiah, I'll admit that as a taunt. I mean, how how do how how do we um how do we reconcile that with First Corinthians chapter four um, about the apostles? We work hard with our own hands. When we were cursed, we bless. When we persecuted, we endure it. When we slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Um, and, and yet contrast that uh, with Isaiah. Mm. The, there's one thing which is a bit semantic. But um, it, 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 it may be not insignificant is in that what Isaiah technically says here in verse 3 and 4 is that the people will do this. It doesn't say that God commands them to gloat in this way. It just says that they, they, they will yeah. rejoice in 
in uh, witnessing justice being done against against wicked okay. uh, people. The fact that the people will do it is is a way of explaining how complete and utter the fall of Babylon will be. Mm. Yes, it, it, it might be that the focus here is more on expressing vividly what is going to happen to Babylon, not so much uh, instructing people to enjoy the suffering of mm. others. Well, speaking of how complete the destruction of Babylon will be, uh, draw your attention to verses 22 and 23 of Isaiah 14. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares the Lord. And I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. Hedgehog. My translation says owls. Well, well, I agree with Luke. Well, hedgehogs, owls. <laughs> Such similar creatures there. <laughs> Interchangeable, if only, really. We're going to have to defer that to a, to a Hebrew scholar. Well, we had, we had one a little earlier, a psalm, didn't we? Or something where, where there were dolphins, the skins of dolphins. Yeah. I have a footnote, uh, and it says possibly porcupine or owl. Ah, uh, well, yeah. that's clear. I mean, I don't have that footnote. I, I, can, see, I can see the ambiguity immediately. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't substantially change the message. I mean, one, one other factor is that, um, that even if this passage was advocating that Israel taunt Babylon, you would still have to weigh it against the demonstrably much more uh, prolific admonitions to be meek and humble. So, mm. so on the balance, uh, on the balance, uh, weighted against the rest of Scripture, it doesn't seem that based on this one passage we should adopt the practice of publicly taunting uh, mm. people who have, who have hurt us in the past, who have, who have come low. Well, that that may be so. There's a whole other topic there in, in should Scripture be interpreted on the balance? Because uh, there's some interesting implications if we apply that to other things which aren't mentioned very often in Scripture but get a lot of airtime in certain cultural circles. Well, one of the things that we don't really interpret, I, I don't know, maybe I'm going to get lots of people uh, who disagree with me on this, but there's one there's one thing that we hold fairly dear to where the balance is is not so clear, especially not in this passage, and that's the state of the dead. Well, uh, and one of the things about the state of the dead, and we we, we only ever uh, this is one of the real difficulties I have with the way, in my observation, we treat the state of the dead. We allow the verses that um, uh, support our particular view of the state of the dead to speak. And we simply silence or reinterpret uh, every other verse that might point in a different direction. And here's a classic example. Mm. Um, uh, if, if you work from the assumption that the position that uh, Seventh-day Adventists hold on the state of the dead um, uh, is correct, then you have to reinterpret this um, as some metaphorical thing. Um, whereas if you, if you come from, from the opposite assumption, it provides very firm support. Uh, for a different view, uh, even though it is speaking in uh, extreme language, uh, the examples that are given um, are examples that assume a spirit can be roused. Yeah, and the verses we're talking about particularly are the uh, the verses that we read uh, where it says that uh, all the dead, dead important people who have died 
are going to be stirred out of their graves in the underworld to mock the Babylonians as mm. they... For, for joining them, yes. I mean, that also can... Um, I don't know how you square interpreting this as metaphorical, uh, also with a reading of the Bible that says everything in it is literal truth. Um, I don't know what sort of gymnastics has to go on there, but uh, it's for me, it's certainly easier to read this as poetic language, as making an emphatic point, as being metaphorical, as as ex- using a a metaphorical, almost mythological type of story to to hammer home the point that even the greatest die and become lesser than the the humblest of the living that everybody mm-hmm. dies everybody ends up at the same point everybody loses all their power and their wealth on this earth in the end i i, I find that much easier to read than going this means that we should literally believe in spirits that can be roused and that talk to people Sure. I agree. I agree with both of you, um, Luke and Ken. So we're, that means the three of us are obviously right. Um, I don't actually have much problem with the Adventist doctrine on the state of the dead, but I'm just very uncomfortable with the way we argue for it, the, the methodology that's sort of employed. Well, I, I, have a, I have a radical take on the doctrine of the state of the dead um, that uh, nobody likes because it means you don't get to talk about it, which is that it simply doesn't matter very much. It's not within the power of the living to influence it in any way. There's nothing we can do about it. Whatever yeah. will happen will happen to all of us at some point. Yeah. Um, and uh, we'll find out then, or maybe we won't. If, if you were speaking to someone who was genuinely consumed by fascination with the occult, then and, and there was a great sort of fervor at the same time as early Adventism in spiritualism, then, uh, and, and, and if people are making decisions on their day-to-day life based on these messages that they imagine are coming from dead people. I can well imagine that it it could be very appropriate to emphasise the Adventist doctrine on the state of the dead in as much as it's really functionally, practically useful um, to people. But but no one in my acquaintance fits that category. In other words, there are medicines that are suited to particular diseases, whereas we seem to treat it like a vitamin to be taken at all times in all circumstances. I, I think it's a very good point. Um, I also think that it depends on the uh, observer, the position of the observer um, uh, in time and space uh, as to which of the doctrines might be or which of the potential um, uh, uh, thoughts about the state of the dead that might be correct. And indeed, they might all be correct because if one removes oneself from space and time um, into uh, the realm uh, of uh, an omniscient, omnipresent um, God outside of uh, time, uh, I- inhabiting a realm in which time will be no more, um, uh, there is little difference uh, between uh, if one is if God is present at all time, um, uh, then it makes no difference. Uh, it will he will the uh, resurrection and uh, the time between. Uh, death uh, for him will be of no consequence. Um, uh, Whereas now, uh, to us, from our observation within time, um, uh, perhaps uh, it is a physical sleep. Um, So I I think there's room. I think the theory of relativity and all of that provides perspective for truth in both uh, perspectives. 
I haven't explained that very well, but anyway. <laughs> no, that that was that was perfectly clear, and I didn't find anything to disagree with. I've got a, a interesting observation on this, and it, it links this passage with the taunt uh, with one of the other parts of the Bible that uh, we find more difficult. In fact, we, we ignore it entirely, in my own experience. At least I've never heard a sermon on it, though I have heard a very good Bible study on it once. And that's the close of the book of Esther. Hmm. Because um, the book of Esther is is the story of the struggle of the Jewish people to survive in exile, and it, it, it contains a great triumph over the Babylonians. And, of course, after the bit that we like, which is where Haman gets caught doing rascally things and and Mordecai makes friends with the the king and it's a fabulous story mm. it's just a wonderful story yeah well it's all, also a bit confusing ken it's quite unbiblical in in quite a few ways well it is anyway so so the um the king the king agrees to give um well the king does whatever Esther says more or less which is hilarious because um, because at the start of the story, I, I'm getting off track, but this needs to be mentioned because it's just so wonderful. At the start of the story, the queen actually won't won't obey the king, and the king turns to his uh, the king turns to his counselors and says, "What do I do? Uh, what do I do? She's not uh, she's not doing what I what I say." And then the they say, "Well, let him issue a royal decree. You, you should issue a royal decree." Let it be written in the laws and media in Persia, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. When the king's edict is proclaimed throughout his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. So the, the premise that this story is built on is that there's a wife not doing what her husband says, and so mm. action needs to be taken so that wives will will respect their husbands. And for the rest of the story, none of the men in the story can do anything without consulting their wives. Haman consults his wife. It's it's a complete farce about male dominance. Yes, and the story ends with Queen Esther breaking the laws of her husband. And yeah. that's how she wins. That's how she yeah. overcomes the great challenge, the great problem, the great threat. Is by disobeying the king, and and you've never seen a weaker bunch of spineless morons than all the men in the Book of Esther. So <laughs> except for Mordecai, yeah, but he's a bit sneaky. We give him too much credit because we say, isn't it wonderful that Mordecai doesn't bow down to Haman? But Mordecai is quite happy for everyone else to bow down to him. <laughs> so I think we let him off the hook a bit bit too lightly and we certainly let Esther off the hook a bit too lightly because she goes to the king and the king says she says well you've given this edict that everyone's allowed to go and kill Jews on a certain day well why don't you just issue a second edict that says the Jews are allowed to defend themselves and the king because he just does whatever she says um does it and he's he he issues this edict and the description of what happens on this day the Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. Mm. That's yes. sounding a lot like the sentiment that we, we picked up in the, in the chapter of Isaiah. Like Isaiah doesn't it? And it, it is not in keeping with the king's edict, which is that they on that day they were allowed to defend themselves. They, they go well beyond that. In fact, you know they go well beyond it because Esther comes to the king and says, Hey, it's been a great day. 
We've got rid of a lot of enemies, but there's still a lot left. Can it go on for tomorrow as well? We haven't done quite enough killing. We haven't killed the sons of Haman yet. And the king says, oh, all right, well, we'll, we'll, we'll give you tomorrow as well. And, and this institutes a great feast. Uh, it's a great celebration. Uh, it's a great triumph of the Jewish people. It's not explicitly taunting the Babylonians, but it's more or less coming close. In fact, it explicitly says that a lot of Babylonians became Jews leading up to this day because they were terrified of the Jews. And a lot of the noblemen um, helped the Jews to kill Babylonians because they were afraid of Mordecai. Mm. So Mordecai doesn't sound like a sort of peace-loving, heroic, biblical character when, when you see it in that light. It's a bit of an Oliver Cromwell. As, as I said, it's not a very <laughs> biblical story. Well... Especially because there is nowhere in there that identifies what God's opinion is about what should happen. Mm. God doesn't speak in the book, and no one speaks to him. No one prays in the book of Esther. They fast, but they don't pray. Everywhere else in the Old Testament, it talks about people fasting and praying. And if you look at the book of Esther, they only fast. It's really obvious by its omission. In fact, the book ah. is almost entirely secular in the way it's told. No, but in Uncle, Ar- in Uncle Arthur's version, um, Cam, they, they definitely do pray. Well, Uncle the Arthur needs to watch out. So, well, Uncle so Arthur needs to watch out for the verse in Revelation about the dangers of adding bits into Scripture. Ooh. Because because in the... Because in it the, does, a lot. <laughs> yes. a lot out. And because... Well, I did once see... I did once see a very highly abridged New Testament in like it was a small little booklet, I think, for evangelistic purposes with like excerpts. And I I did look with interest to see whether that included the verse about not being allowed to take things out of the scriptures. And they had left that verse out. So, um, (laughs) but certainly, certainly when it comes to the way we tell the the story of the the book of Esther is we, we do add a lot in. And the, the characters are more complicated than it looks. And one interpretation I have been given, which I find a bit convincing, is, is that God is not actually very pleased with, with what the Israelites do. They are, they are victims and they turn into perpetrators. And that, and that God's name, God does not wish to be associated with this. And it is possible that the account we have of the book of Esther, there's nothing to indicate in the book that it was written at that time. There, there is one school of thought that says the book of Esther that we have is a, is a commentary written at a later stage where all references to the name of God have been removed to make the point that God is not proud to be associated with, with this sort of violence. Which is an interesting implication that whenever that story was originally written, it was written in the same way as some of these parts of Isaiah that we find very troubling and also other Old Testament stories where God commands the Israelites to kill all the women and children, etc., etc. You wonder if, say, the book of Exodus had been written in the same way and time as as we might suppose the book of Esther was, if it might also have similarly been edited to remove God's culpability with certain decisions and actions that the Israelites took. It, it's idle wondering because we have no way of knowing, but it's an interesting yeah. thought. Yeah. Well, another another way of uh, another uh, addition or subtraction or another addition that is involved in interpreting this text in our, in Isaiah is um, the reference that we make in verse twelve to uh, well to verse twelve and onwards being a clear allusion to Satan. 
Now, it's true that the, uh, the morning star, the sun of the dawn, uh, is translated as Lucifer in, I think, the Latin Vulgate. Um, uh, but the, the literal meaning of the word is a morning star and sun of dawn. And why is it that when, uh, in verse 3, the taunt is against the king of Babylon, uh, so the start of the taunt is against the king of Babylon, and uh, uh, we end up uh, in verse 22, the end of the taunt is, uh, I will cut off from Babylon her name and her survivors, um, and yet suddenly in the middle of this taunt, which starts and finishes about the king of Babylon, we have a spiritual interpretation that aligns with a great controversy mm. um, uh, view of the world rather than simply reading it as this amazing kingdom uh, has died, uh, the death that all other kingdoms die. There is one element there, Ken, which is um, you know some essentially are so caught up in in some of the themes of perhaps Revelation. Uh, in the book of Revelation, Babylon is not the mighty kingdom that it was for Isaiah, the cultural context. But Babylon is used in the book of Revelation over and over again in a kind of symbolic representative way of that great evil. Um, and I think that it's a bit, uh, it's a common sort of retro insertion to then say, ah, well, if Babylon is the satanic evil one and the evil power in the book of Revelation, then anytime we see Babylon anywhere in the pages of the Bible, we can substitute Satan um, or that sort of equivalent uh, substitution. Mm. I agree with you that it's it's very clearly here in context speaking of a king of Babylon. And we know from, we know from the story in Daniel, uh, you know, when it says the, the offspring... Um, you know, the I will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and prosperity. Well, cutting off from a king, his descendants, means the end of his dynasty, means the Ooh. end of his family's rule. And that's exactly what happens to the Babylonian power in the book of Daniel. And it gets supplanted by and the Medes history. and Persians. You said that this verse is clearly about the king of Babylon. But I don't think you are, you're accepting a plain enough reading of the text because we obviously... In this podcast, adhere very strongly to a plain reading of the text. And a plain reading of the text says that this is a sentient star with <laughs> some biological components, because as a heart, which has fallen and out of the I sky. It's the morning star. It's the morning the star. Dawn. Yeah. Yes. The sun of dawn. So it's, is it Venus? It must be, it must be referring star? to the no, planet it, Venus. No, it can't be referring to Venus because Venus has not ever touched the ground. Ah. <laughs> if you're all quite done with this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was going to make a point about Babylon. Babylon is one of the races or cultures, and they're actually quite rare. The Romans are another major one of ancient times that have not descended in some way to the modern day. See, Persia, which immediately followed Babylon, there's a direct line of dynasties and cultures all the way through to modern Iran. Um, but the Babylonians, much like the Romans, don't exist anymore. They don't have any modern descendants. They've been dispersed completely and assimilated into other things. You can't look at any modern country and say, this is the descendants of Babylon. 
Hmm. Um, it's located in Iraq, but but much like Rome is located in Italy, there's there's no connection there. Yeah. Uh, as much as as certain modern rulers have tried to to you know artificially create one so it it is it is a very significant you know in light of known history it is a very significant prophecy about because it's very precise and accurate mm. but it mm. her offspring and descendants have been wiped out yeah my barber describes himself as persian yeah well yes indeed there are modern persians mm. there are not modern babylonians well, of course, and we are skirting an issue a little bit. Uh, it, it matters less than we think about how accurately we can identify this morning star or what's represented by Babylon. And, and we do pay perhaps a little bit too much emphasis in trying to work out who the baddies are in the world around us and how which biblical passages apply best to them. One of the things that the Adventist movement did, which was novel, or at least reasonably novel, was insist that uh, God's people would also be subject to judgment. Or at least, what am I trying to say? Uh, being baptised when you were born and saying the right things and giving away 10% of your money is not automatic insurance of God's favour. Uh, and, and Adventists took this a little bit too far, perhaps, there's there is a sort of a heritage of anxiety. Uh, I know my uh, great grandmother was 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 quite anxious when she was getting very old about whether she'd make it to heaven. Uh, that's perhaps less than helpful, uh, but certainly certainly I I am at least proud of the fact of belonging to a a denomination that at least pays lip service to introspection and to questioning ourselves and not just looking outside mm. and and. One question we can ask ourselves is, uh, are we in any way, do we in any way resemble the the properties of Babylon? Hmm. One of them is, is pride. Are, are we the morning star? There is, there is a reading of the, the idea of Babylon as it appears in, in some ways of reading Isaiah and also in Revelation, which, Locke, I think you've talked about on the podcast before quite at least a couple of times, in that Babylon is is not an entity, even in the metaphorical sense, is not representative of it, of an entity in the world, an organization or or a country or anything like that. It is that part of ourselves that is sinful. So mm. there is a Babylon in every one that we must all be at, at, on our guard against. Yeah. I certainly find that to be one helpful way to read some of these passages. Uh, if, if they are to have utility and value, for me, not living in the Middle East, not living in that era of time, I can still be on the lookout for beast-like behavior as I read Daniel and Revelation and the, and the beast who has a mark and a false uh, sort of system of worship. I can be on the lookout for that, not out in the world so that I can identify it and then feel good about myself, but I can be on the lookout for those characteristics in my own behavior so that I can confront them. Uh, I, I find that to be a somewhat helpful idea. And perhaps this is an interesting point to sort of draw us a bit towards a close. You know, we talked 
about our difficulty with this idea of the oppressed now becoming the rulers. Um, it's reminded me of a verse in Exodus 22. And of course, we know the story of the Exodus. It starts with God hearing the cry of an oppressed people at the hands of Egypt. But in Exodus 22, verse 21 to 24, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. It's a heavy threat as, as words on a page, but I think it's very vividly saying, I've rescued you from Egypt where you were oppressed. If you turn out to be the sort of people who do that to others, I'm going to hear the cry of those you oppress just as I heard your cry. I'm the God who comes to the rescue of the oppressed. So if you want to stay on my side, don't become the sort of power that oppresses the powerless. And that is a theme which is rich and deep. And I'm picking it up in Exodus. We could pick up the same sorts of themes throughout the prophets and into the New Testament. It's, I think, a central element of what we're called to be as followers of God in the way of Jesus Christ. But Into the very teachings of Jesus himself. It, it is. Uh, with the, un the parable of the ungrateful servant. Exactly. And I think that that has to stay in our mind. No matter what we do, and I, I'm, I'm admitting that I'm not really resolving our discussion on Isaiah 14, it, it, it is listed as a taunt. Um, we've discussed aspects of its connection to the story of Esther, and there's some troubling stuff there that I think does deserve plenty of ongoing thought. Uh, issue that as homework to the listeners. Um, but I think that if we don't recognize the centrality of our call as followers of God to be the kind of people that do not abuse power and do not oppress others, that that's got to stay in the front of our mind. If we miss that, then we're then we're definitely, I think, going to read Isaiah fourteen incorrectly. Look, I like that, and maybe the idea behind Isaiah fourteen is that Isaiah has just said that a whole bunch of bad stuff's going to happen to Israel and Judah, and th that might, you know, encourage people to to get out, leave the sinking ship, and Isaiah's saying, well, actually. There's nowhere else better to go. Don't go running off to these powerful countries. They're not powerful forever. Maybe what Isaiah is saying is, is don't be afraid to belong to that humble class. Don't, mm. being, don't, don't try and avoid being part of the oppressed. Don't try and lift yourself up. The people who lift themselves up get it just the same as everyone else. So, so this in, it could be seen as a way of promoting the value, albeit in a slightly... Uh, humorous or provocative way it's promoting the the perhaps not the value in a humble life but it is removing the illusion that there is any other way that's more valuable mm. uh, and one verse that i thought of was in leviticus where uh god takes them they're entering the promised land and god says to them you can't buy and sell this land permanently because it's mine you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers, which is exactly what the Israelites were wanting to escape from when they were in Egypt. Oh, that's great. And God God springs it on them. He says, hey, surprise, you've now got the promised land, but it's not yours. You are going to be strangers and foreigners in my land perpetually. 
You're not, you're not ever going to become like Babylon, full of pride, strutting around saying, look at what we've done. Hmm. Uh, you're not ever going to become like the Philistines and the Moabites and the Edomites, and you're going to be quite different. Uh, you're going to be the perpetual foreigner. You're going to be the perpetual immigrant. You're going to be, you're on my land. Yeah, that's beautiful. Which, th- this, that ties in wonderfully to some of the concepts of heaven that we've talked about. Um, in recent months as well. Um, I, I was going to finish with a thought that um, is very similar to what you were saying, Locke. That it's, it's in Isaiah very clearly as it is in a lot of the Old Testament prophets. And it is, this, it is this instruction about the nature of these cycles of oppression, where you have an oppressor and you have the oppressed, and then justice is done on the oppressors because they're wicked. The oppressed rise up, and, but then in turn they become the oppressors. And then justice is done on them. And the cycle goes round and round. And actually, it's it's instructive. It's instructing us that the only way to break the cycle is to do exactly what you were saying. When, when your turn in the position of power comes, is to refrain from oppressing others. To look after the widows and the orphans um, and the foreigners in your land and all the rest of it. Otherwise, the cycle continues. Mm. Um, and it, that in particular should be a lesson for all of us living in wealthy countries today. I take that lesson mm. to heart, Luke. I think that's a great point on which to finish. And unfortunately, Cam, it means that we probably shouldn't sit down and write taunts mm. for uh, various organizations that we have contemplated. Oh, well, I'll rip mine up now. <laughs> yes, I yeah. saw you there with your pen as the discussion was it, going. <laughs> it would certainly make a sermon that, that less people would be likely to sleep through, I think, if you got up and launched into a taunt. <laughs> well, it would be a good way to start a sermon, wouldn't it? Just reading Isaiah 14. Yeah. <laughs> with, with, you know, real, put some real passion into it. That would get everyone's attention. Well, and it's certainly the case that the prophets excelled at getting people's attention. So, Yes, not always to their benefit. Not always to their benefit. But one might also suppose that in as much as it was their task to grab the attention of a people who were not paying attention, that they may at times have employed slightly exaggerated language. Mm. Uh, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a note of caution there too. Anyway, it's fascinating passage it's not one that i've i've read really except for those verses in the middle that i've heard often attributed um to be about lucifer so uh we hope you've enjoyed our discussion as well if you do have comments send them into sabbath school from home at gmail.com we look forward to hearing from you and uh, join us again next week